Good morning, Southfield. I'm being straight up honest with you. It is good to see you. Glad you're here. Hope you're ready to uh, to worship. I only say that because in an hour it'll all be over and you'll have missed your chance. So if you need a few warm-up minutes, I encourage you to actively consider where your mind and where your heart is. Most of you are seated and that's fine. In fact, we'll just do something for this uh, this first song. I want to invite you to stand when you feel engaged and you're ready to say, I totally agree with what I'm singing right now. It's uh, on your timing. Lord Jesus, we come to you coming from different weeks. We are facing many things. We just want to tell you right now, right now that we don't believe that any one of those things that we are facing is greater than you in power, in importance, or significance, or even eternality. You always win. Amen. Well, welcome, Southfield. I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, this morning, Dennis is going to continue a series that he began last week. It's our, it's our Lent series. Uh, last week, it was I'm Forgiven. And this week, we're going to introduce a song to you that you may have heard. I'm going to guess that you've heard it on the radio. Um, but it goes along with our series and the messages that Dennis is going to be sharing with us. And as you know, with all songs, I just encourage you to, to sing when you're ready. Sing when you feel like you've got it. Um, I don't think it'll take you that long to get this song, but really let those words sink in and make these words your prayer for your life. Dear Lord, that's our prayer today, Father, that wherever you guide us, we'll follow. And Lord, there are times where it's, it's hard as humans to follow each one of these, Lord God, to, to actually do what we prayed, to serve how you serve, to love who you love, to go where you go and to stay where you stay, Lord God. Sometimes it's hard to do that. But, Lord, we know that we can trust you with our lives, and we know that we can look to you to know how to love perfectly and how to serve humbly. Lord, we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, it's good to see you this morning. Sorry, I'm getting buckled up here. As you walked in, you received a folder, and on the inside is a card. And we always appreciate you taking that card out, putting your name on it. If you do that right now, if you want, go ahead and put a a way to contact you, um, whether it's your email or your best phone number. If this is your first time, fill out as much of the card as you're comfortable filling out. And uh, what we'd like to do for you is, you know, you do that for us. We'd like to give you a gift. So as you're leaving today, you'll notice a table on the way out the door. And there's a, a book there by Andy Stanley called How Good is Good Enough. We'd love for you to take one of those as, as our way of saying thanks for being here today. On the back side, you see a nice open box, and that's an area that you can go ahead and Put the, the prayer requests that you have. Uh, maybe something great has happened in your life, and you're saying, wow, I, I just, I've got to share this. I've got to talk about it. It's important for other people to know about it. Maybe there's a burden in your life right now that's really pressing in on you. You just want to know other people are praying with you. And You notice at the bottom there's a, a place for you to mark whether or not you want that request made a little more public, shared with our whole prayer team, or if you just want that shared with the staff and you want to keep it kept a little more private. We'll also be using that box uh, toward the end of our time talking today uh, in order to talk about the commitments and the next steps we'll make based on the things that we've learned today. Would you go ahead and bow your head once again? We're going to talk to God. Father, um, we're just extremely grateful to you that we get the chance in freedom to gather and worship in plain sight and that we can declare that you are our God uh, without any fear of reprisal for that. Um, 
God, I pray that we will always uh, live up to the great freedom that you have given us, that we will not hold back from really publicly declaring with the way we live who you are so that other people know that, yes, we are, we are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, we've entered Lent, this 40-day journey to the cross. And, and we want to use this season uh, very purposefully. We want to be reflective. We want to spend time asking hard questions of ourselves. Hard questions of, of where we are in our walk with God. Really think that through during this season. Um, what areas have I drifted? Where was I closer at one time and I've wandered away some? What are some areas that I need to repent uh, maybe some, some areas of sin that I've taken on as a pattern in my life, and I'm saying, wow, I need to step back into my right relationship with God. What areas of my life need redefinition? They, they've lost some, some focus. They've become blurry. We want to be uh, just really real in this series, more than normal, just getting down, being intensely vulnerable, thinking about things like that. Now, every sermon in this series, I'm going to start with basically the same series of questions, which is a little unusual. You're kind of used to a a wide variety of introductions. But I want to bring this same series of questions back time and time again, because I really want them to soak in. I want it to be, by the time we get toward Easter, you're like, I've heard the questions, I'm sick of it. Because you've heard them enough, but they're starting to soak in. You're starting to think about them very deeply. So we talked about the fact that in a relationship between a guy and a girl, the relationship is moving along and, and, and it's time for it to dive a little bit more seriously. And one person and the other will start asking those uh, defining questions. What is this relationship? Where is it going? Where do you see this headed in the future? And I asked you to take that concept and turn it to your relationship with Jesus. I wanted you to imagine that Jesus is standing right there in front of you. You are, you are looking into his eyes. You can see the color of his eyes. You, you can see him. He's right there. And he's about to ask you some intensely uh, difficult questions. He looks at you and he says, so where are we? Where are we? Where is this relationship? Where is it? Where is it going? He asks you, so... Are we just friends or is there something more going on here? Is this deeper than it seems? He asks you, when my father asks me what's going on between us, what do you want me to tell him? What am I supposed to say? Or maybe he just outright demands. I need to know where this relationship is headed and I need to know now. So I ask you again, in light of those questions, uh, what would you say? Just stop for a moment and think about it. What would you say? What, What proof would you offer him of your love? What's the action that you would hold out and say, see, look, this proves it. What words would you use to define your relationship with him? You're telling him. This is what our relationship is all about. What words would you use? You know, these questions remind me of the story in 
in John chapter 21 in the Bible. Peter's actions uh, on the night of Jesus' trial, his actions of betrayal, speak far more loudly than any declaration of devotion he might have made in front of the other disciples. Well, now Jesus is risen, and he's offering Peter a new, a fresh start. And so there they are at the lake shore. And Peter's done some fishing, and he's there, and, and we read that, that there's breakfast. And after breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And then these isn't his fishing equipment, though I'm sure, like any fisherman, he had certain equipment he enjoyed. No, the, these were the other disciples, because you remember his public declaration, Lord, I die for you. I don't know about these other guys, but me, I die for you. And so now Jesus is very pointedly, he's bringing it back. So, let's think about history here. Do you really love me more than these? And of course, Peter replies, you know I love you. To which Jesus says, feed my lambs. The the question is repeated a second time. I don't know about you, when I'm repeatedly asked a question, I kind of wonder where this is going. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And it goes even a third time, just like the three denials. He's being given three opportunities to reclaim Jesus once again. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Look at the next line. It says Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him the question a third time. And his answer, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. You know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. That hurt that hurt. Wow, it's a very probing question. It was a very public question. It's, it's being asked in front of all the other disciples. There it is. It's a very painful question. And that's the level of intensity that I want us to feel as we're probing our relationship with God. I want it to feel that pointed. I want us to move beyond just the, the knee-jerk reaction, Lord, you know I love you, to, Lord, you really know me. You know me inside now. There's nothing I can hide from you. You know me. We're going to move beyond the surface answer to the deep, dark, hidden realities of our hearts and souls, our thoughts, our secret motives. Yeah, I want it to hurt a little bit. Because Jesus is asking us a question. And, and, and truth is, we haven't quite gotten yet to the depth of our real identity in Christ. So it's a time that we're going to define this relationship we have. That's Lent 2012 for us. It's a reflective DDR. It's a time to focus on that final word, too. Do you see it there? Relationship. That's that's what makes us unique. We're not about a religion. The Bible is about a relationship. It's about the relationship that we have with Jesus. And so we need to spend time not just defining our religion. That's not what it's about. But really defining what our relationship with God is, what it looks like, how it works. Now, we began the journey last week with with two diagnostic questions, two questions that just really get right to the core of the fundamentals of our relationship with God. And I want to show you the second question again. It said, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Uh, Now, here's the truth, and we talked about this last week. The only answer to this question is Jesus. 
The only right answer to this question is Jesus. It's not about what I've done. It's not about where I go to church. It's not about my actions. It's not about my goodness. It's not about something I tried to do. The only right answer is Jesus died, was buried, and rose again to pay for my sins. And I believe that. I trust in him. And I've decided, yes, I need the forgiveness of Jesus. I repent of my sins. That's the only, the only right answer. I love this question. I really do. I think it just, like I said, it cuts to the core. You ask someone this question, and they're going to tell you fundamentally what they believe about how they have a relationship with God. And they're either going to be dead on, or they're going to miss the mark. However, one of the things I'm not crazy about in this question, I think it stresses the benefits of a relationship with God. I mean, we talked about the fact that last week, the first part of our identity is, I'm forgiven. Who doesn't want to be forgiven? That's wonderful. And it asks the question, if you were to die tonight, and Jesus were to say, God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Now, for most people, I think that if they found out they were going to heaven, they'd be pretty excited about that. Uh, In fact, most reasonable people, if you ask them, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? They're going to say, well, heaven. There will be a few people who will say hell because they have misconceptions about hell. They think it's going to be their buddies gathered all night poker or all that kind of stuff. But, but, but the Bible doesn't describe hell as a pleasant experience at all. It's eternal torment and separation from God. And when people really understand what it is, there's no way that they would opt for that. Of course they want heaven. In fact, when we become believers, we're like, yes, I'm going to heaven. But, you know, in that, a person can start to think of their salvation simply as fire insurance. Yay, I'm not going to hell. Woo, good deal. I'm excited. I'm not going to the bad place. I'm going to the good place. But here's the truth. Salvation is not just about then and there. It's not just about eternity. It's about here and now. And way too many people in their relationship with God understand that they're forgiven. And that's where they end the relationship. They say, I'm forgiven. See you in 50 years. I'll I'll be in heaven. I'll I'll be there. But in the meantime, I'm going to have a good time here. Because what in the world does salvation matter here and now? It's all about there. It's not simply life insurance. I'm telling you. The afterlife is of huge importance. There's no question. But the here and now is also important. God wants to be a part of your life now. Not just later. He wants to be a part of your life now. He wants to impact the way you live now. He wants to impact your decisions now. There are many terms used to describe the relationship we have with God. In fact, some of them are straight from the Bible. Words like, I'm a Christian. Words like, I'm I'm born again. I'm saved. And, you know, part of what's unfortunate with some of those terms is they've used, been used so much, they've been used so commonly, and they've been used sometimes by some people rather recklessly that they've developed kind of a pejorative connotation. People hear that and they don't see it as a positive. So a while back, we, like a lot of churches I know, tried to find another way to express what is this relationship with God all about, and we use this term. We say, we're fully devoted Christ followers. That's what it means. That, that describes my relationship with God. It's not just that I'm forgiven, but I am a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you look at that and break it down real quick, you see that middle word, devoted, comes straight out of Acts 2 when it describes the early church in its formation. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Devoted, all in. I mean, this wasn't dabbling. It wasn't giving it a try. It wasn't, hey, I'll experiment a little with a little bit of Jesus and see how it works out. They dove right in. In fact, putting the word fully in front of devoted is just incredibly redundant. It's hard to be more devoted than devoted. But we're fully devoted. We are all in. Following whom? We're following Jesus. We're following Christ in every aspect of our lives. Not just then and there. Not just fire assurance. Not just I'm not going to hell and I am going to heaven. But it's going to impact every minute of every day here and now while I'm living in this place. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, it starts with a call. Jesus calls us to follow him. He calls out to us to follow him. One of the most common calls to following Jesus in the Bible is found in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Peter, James, and John are by the lake, sowing their nets, getting ready for some fishing. And Jesus, it says, calls out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Some of you have heard it put that way as well. When you break down this call, it's amazing. The first thing you see about it is the call is clear and compelling. What does it say? Come follow me. I mean, does it get any clearer than that? It's not kind of like, hey, you might want to possibly try out perhaps for a day. Would you mind experimenting for an hour coming and seeing what it's like to be with? No, come follow me. There's an immediacy about it. Come follow me now. Not, not later on. Drop everything you're doing. Come follow me. And they understood following in a very literal sense. They were quitting their careers. They were going to spend 24-7 with Jesus. Eat with him, sleep with him, watch him teach, be a part of his life. They were there with him. This was a, this was a rabbi-student relationship. And they were just going to have full-time exposure to Jesus Christ. They got what they were doing. Uh, It was a clear, compelling call. Further you look at it, it's an empowering call. Come follow me and I will show you. Jesus wasn't saying, come follow me because I can really use somebody to do my laundry and make my bed. That wasn't what was going on. He says, come follow me because I want to help you to become something you could never become on your own. And that's what Jesus is promising us, that if we will follow him, if we're fully devoted to him, he will make us something we would never have been on our own. He empowers us, enables us to do what he desires us to do. He says, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. The third part of the call is that it's life changing. These guys weren't just going to be fishing for fish anymore. Uh, Jesus was going to take their entire life and, and flip it upside down. He said, I'm going to take what you do for a living and make it into a real life. I'm going to take what you do for a living and make it into something that's incredibly significant. And that's Jesus, what Jesus wants to do for you and for me. He wants to turn our existence into the best of all possible experiences. He wants to take that, that thing you see as just a daily routine and he wants to make your life into a true calling. 
Now, this call demands a response. It demands a response. I mean, we read in the passage, it says, immediately they dropped their nets and followed him. They even spent ten minutes thinking about it. They, immediately they dropped their nets and followed him. Basically, there are two kinds of responses that we can have to the call of Jesus. The first is the response of the crowd. There were a lot of people that followed Jesus. The crowd tends to look like followers. They smell like followers. They even seem to act like followers. But if you scratch the veneer a little bit, under the surface, you'll find anything but a follower. The crowd is not a follower. Mark 4.25 tells us about this crowd that was gathering. It says news about him, news about Jesus, spread as far as Syria, all the way to Damascus. And people soon began bringing him all who were sick. And whatever's their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed, epileptic, or paralyzed, he healed them all. The next verse, verse 25, says, Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, from the ten towns, it's also called Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. Large, large crowds. You know what it seems like? It seems like the message is taking root. It seems like it's working. I mean, for the most part, when people are leading, they see a crowd as equaling success. If there are a crowd of people, something good must be going on here, right? I mean, there's a buzz. The mighty Mo is on our side. Things are working. This is great. The crowd is with Jesus. You head on over to John chapter 6, the passage in which he feeds 5,000 people. The, the passage begins by saying, After this, Jesus crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs and he healed the sick. You see the because there. They give a reason for their followership. They're watching the miracles. Now, now don't get on the crowd too fast. It's good that they're seeing the miracles. If they're understanding the miracles correctly, they're realizing that Jesus is performing the miracles to affirm his message, to authenticate that his message is true. It's also to prove that he is the Son of God. So maybe they're getting it. Maybe they understand what's going on. Maybe they get the the message behind the miracles. We go a little bit later in the chapter. And we find out that eh, it's not quite taking hold. John 6, 26, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. He said, you're not. You're not getting the message behind the miracles. You just want a free lunch. And in the next few verses then in the chapter, Jesus describes very starkly his identity and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He lays out the call to discipleship. And you go over to, ironically, John 6, 6, 6. Okay, John 6, 66. It says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. When it got tough, when the message got real, when, when the heart-probing questions were asked, the crowd was incredibly fickle. They were not true followers. In fact, they were anything but followers. They weren't followers at all. On the surface, the crowd may seem like followers, but don't be fooled by that. 
wonder today, are you part of the crowd? Are you part of the crowd that follows Jesus? The, the folks that want a free lunch? Maybe if I get close to Jesus, close enough to Him, I'll get some good things from Him. Maybe He'll bless me. Maybe He'll bless my life. You find yourself kind of being a, a fair-weather fan or a fair-weather friend. Hey, as long as things are going in, I'm all in with Jesus. But if things start going bad, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. And you kind of step aside. Maybe you got kind of a lucky rabbit's foot approach to Jesus. You know, if you, if you just hold on to your cross tightly enough, Jesus will do whatever you want. Bless me. Make my life easy. Take away my problems. And if Jesus doesn't deliver, you bold. That's the crowd. That's the crowd. There's another reaction to the, to the call, and that is uh, the called. Not the people who are just following for a free lunch, but the truly called, the people who could be referred to as fully devoted Christ followers. And as we look at this, I want to ask the question today, what's the price tag? I mean, if I want to be devoted, what am I being devoted to? What does devoted look like? It's one thing to say I'm a follower of Jesus. It's another thing for him to lay it out and say, if you follow me, this is what it's going to cost you. If you follow me, this is how your life is going to be changed. This is what your life is going to look like like from here forward. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, describe following in about as stark a way as possible. It says, Jesus then said to whom? The crowd. He's letting everybody know, here's your opportunity. If any of you wants to be my follower, if you want to move out of crowd status over to follower status, you must turn from your selfish ways. That one's tough in itself. You must turn from your selfish ways. You must take up your cross daily and then follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake... Then you will save it. What's the price tag? This is tough. I have to deny myself. The first part of the price tag is about self-denial. Another way to put it, I die a daily death to me. I die a daily death to me. I stop being selfish. I turn from my selfish ways. I realize I'm not living for me. I'm living for someone else. The entirety of my existence is devoted to someone else, not me. The Apostle Paul got this. In First and Second Corinthians, he talks about the fact that he died daily. He died daily. I love Second Corinthians chapter 4. It's an amazing passage. And in it, Paul talks about what it means to deny yourself and take up the cross daily. He says, yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. He says, every time I die to myself, people are able to see Jesus and not me. So we live in the face of death. But this has resulted in eternal life for you. Because I'm dying, you get the chance at eternal life. He says that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will, and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. 
For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul gets it. He gets what it means to die to himself. He says, I'm not about my own pleasure. I'm not about my own comfort. I'm not about living selfishly. I'm living for someone else. The sum of it is this. If we're going to follow Jesus, not be part of the crowd, but be part of the called, we need to put aside our ambitions, our dreams, our desires, and pursue something much greater and much more valuable. I have to die to me. I have to die to me. Life is about Jesus. It's not about me. That price tag is self-denial or daily death to me. If you want it even more bluntly, stop being selfish. That's price number one. But it keeps going. The second part of the price is found in John chapter 13. It says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that is what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do what I have done to you. What's the second price cost of being a follower? Is it foot washing? Is it that simple that we're missing out on something here and we should be making sure every once in a while we have somebody slip off their shoes and and wash the other person's feet? To be perfectly honest, that would be easy in comparison to what this passage is saying. It would be easy to go through the simple routine of washing the lint out from between someone else's toes. No, this is much harder than that. This is much harder than that. He's saying not just simply imitate this thing I'm doing. Imitate my action. Imitate my attitude. Imitate my spirit. He's saying, if I'm the greatest among you and I'm willing to bow down and be the servant to people in the room, what right do you have to say you're better than someone else? Uh, And the second part of the cost is not just that idea of not being selfish, but to do what Jesus did, to take on his actions and attitudes, to be like him. What attitude, you might ask? Well, Philippians 2 spells it out beautifully. And again, how does this passage begin? Don't be selfish. Are you catching a theme here? Are you catching a theme of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. That might be a year-long journey for some of us. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. And in verse 5 he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And the rest of the passage talks about his attitude of sheer humility. Total humility. You see, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, the cost is I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to start living like Jesus. I'm going to start acting like Jesus. I'm going to start having the attitude and spirit of Jesus. More and more, I find myself aligning with his identity. And honestly, for some of us, we look at that and we say, that, that's too high a cost. I don't want to be like Jesus. I want to be like me. I want to be like my friends. I want to be like something else. But the cost of being a follower is to be like Jesus. Third aspect of being like Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 7. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it, are you getting that? 
Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds his house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. The third aspect of, of giving your life to Jesus, of following him, is to obey him. I mean, that's pretty simple. Obey him. Listen to what he says and follow what he says. Put into actions the things that he says. Look at this series of verses from John chapter 14. It says, if you love me, obey my commands. Not if you love me, send me flowers or say I love you. If you love me, do what I say. Obey my commands. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. The next verse says, anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. Are you catching the correlation here? You can't declare your love for Jesus and say, but I'm going to do what I want the way I want and ignore what the Bible says. You either obey what Jesus says and love him, or you're just part of the crowd who's along for the benefits but you're not really a devoted Christ follower. Jesus wants us to be a follower. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to move from crowd status to being part of the core. That's where he wants us to to live. I want to show you a passage uh, that just describes what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. That's the definition. I mean, that's what we should be saying. I am a follower, a follower of Jesus. There's a passage in Luke 9. I was half tempted to just spend our whole morning here because it's got, there's some complexities in this passage that really, that really uh, are important to understand and to dig into. Let me just give you the, the highlights. It says, as they were walking along in verse 57... Someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. wonder how often Jesus heard that. Hey, I'm with you. I'm in. Come on, let's go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man hasn't even a place to lay his head. Uh, the first thing he's saying here is, uh, you know, obviously there's a price. There's a cost to being a Christ follower. It's not all about the benefits. It's not all about heaven when you die. It's not all about not going to hell. There's a price to be paid for being a follower of Jesus. Now He goes on in this passage. He goes on to say to another person, come follow me. And it says the man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. And then further down, another person says, Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. Now, neither of those requests seem unreasonable. What I really want you to focus in on is two words. First and but first. First and but first. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus issues this call to follow him, We as humans want to put conditions on it. Sure, I'll follow you. Glad to follow you. But first, but first. And here's where I want you to land this morning. What's your but first? What's keeping you in the crowd instead of making the move to follower? 
What's keeping you in the herd instead of becoming one of the called? I suspect it's a but first. There's a but first going on. You find yourself saying, sure, I'll deny myself. Sure, I'll be selfless. But first, God, you better look out for me. I'm not going to look out for me. Someone better look out for me. God, I would be glad to be like Jesus. But first, and we fill in a blank there. God, I'll obey you completely. But, and we put a qualification in there and say, you know, these are the conditions under which I'll follow you. I had one for a long time. Mine went something like this. I'll follow you if you show me how it's all going to work out in the end. If you just reveal everything, then I can trust you. Show me the path, show me the way it works out, and then I'll trust you completely. Doesn't that kind of defy trust a little bit? I've got to know everything, and then I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. I just I want you to land there for a moment. What's your butt first? What's the thing that you keep saying? This is I'm not crossing that line until this is met out. And what I'd like you to do is spend a couple moments reflecting on it on paper. So get your card out and turn it over. And there's a box. Would you have the guts today in your conversation with Jesus, in this one-on-one eyeball conversation he's having with you, would you have the guts to write down today what your butt first is? What's that thing that blocks you? from full devotion? What's the thing that keeps you tied to the crowd instead of making the move toward Christ? He's looking for fully devoted Christ followers. Not looking for people who, you know, want to give him a whirl. Let's give Jesus a try and see how that works out. He's looking for fully devoted Christ followers. So the question I have for you is kind of crazy. The thing you just wrote down, or maybe the thing that's in your head, are you ready to give it up for Lent? Or more importantly, are you ready to give it up for Jesus? Are you ready to give up your qualifier? Are you ready to give up your butt first and say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm not just part of the crowd. I'm not just happy that I'm going to heaven when I die, but I'm living for you here, now, today. I'm denying myself. I'm dying daily to me. I'm obeying you wholly and completely. And I'm going to do everything it takes in my life to act and be like Jesus. Let's talk to him. Father, a response to you should not be, I follow you first, but I follow you, period. I just follow you. I'm laying no qualifications on my followership. And I pray that we would have that kind of freedom today. The kind of freedom that will finally move us from this, from this place that we've been that hesitates and that holds back. God, I pray today there would be people that would finally cross this line. They're in. There's no question. They're part of the kingdom of God. They, they, they're forgiven. 
but they haven't yet been willing to say, and I'll follow. Forgiveness isn't enough. You didn't save us just for then and there. It's for here and now. Help us to live like it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our servers are going to come in a moment and bring communion to us. It said that in the passage in John 6, he talked about the hard realities of who he was. He says, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. He goes on to say, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give bread from heaven. My father in heaven did. And now he offers you true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives to the world. And then he went on to say what? I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. You'll never thirst. Are you ready to truly embrace who Jesus is? Not who you'd like him to be, not who you've dreamed him to be, or made him up in your own image. Are you ready to embrace Jesus, to call him your Lord, to say, yes, I'm a fully devoted Christ follower? Think about that as you take communion this morning. Self-denial, God. Are we ready for it? Are we ready to say, I give up my selfish ways? The only thing that counts, the only thing that matters is the cross of Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters is my Lord and Savior. Nothing else. I am a fully devoted Christ follower. God, I pray that we will be able to say that with sincerity and conviction. Not not just a label we throw out there because that's the popular thing to say right now. But with sincerity and conviction, we'll say every day, I am drawing toward the cross. Every day, I am drawing closer to Jesus. We pray this in in the name of the one who loved us enough to die for us. Amen. Our servers are going to come right now. They'll receive uh, your offering. Put your card in there at the same time as well. We really appreciate that you do that. Uh, Bob Bob and Stephanie Coyne, Maura Kenny, have been leading uh, one of our journey groups this this, uh, spring that involves working out. We meet on... Tuesday evening and Saturday morning over at the warehouse. And for somewhere between 40 to 45 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour, a, a herd of about 20 to 25 people uh, are being put through things that were very easy when we were children. You know, it's amazing how something as simple as jumping up and down for a minute can be exhausting. When you're a kid, wow, that was a piece of cake. Uh, one of my great challenges, I, I can tell where my fitness level is just based on a simple thing like jumping jacks. Uh, I start doing jumping jacks, and, and typically I think, how hard can this be? And about 10 seconds in, literally, I'm winded, I'm seeing visions, uh, hallucinations, all kinds of funny stuff going on. And I can tell I'm getting better when I can endure with that. And just when I'm getting that, we get like yesterday, where out of the clear blue, he says, okay, we're going to do switch jacks which involved something that looks like, you know, the peanuts uh, dancing around a circle or something. And that's my other challenge is coordination. I mean, it's just, it's an ugly thing. I'm waiting for somebody to YouTube me slobbering all over the floor and making a mess. 
And what I'm finding with working out throughout the years is, you know, the only way I get good at this stuff is if I do it and do a little more and a little more and a little more. So start with 30 seconds and then 45 seconds before you know I'm doing a minute. And I'm like, wow, why was this so hard before? You know, the same is true of praying. If I were to say to you today, every one of us should pray an hour a day, people would choke. I mean, you, uh, an hour, are you nuts? I, you know, uh, let's see. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. God bless the missionaries. Jesus' name, amen. I don't think we even hit 15 seconds with that. Are you kidding me, really? We want to encourage you to grow in your duration in prayer. Not because there's some magic in just praying a longer prayer, but because it's a longer time in the presence of God, the conscious presence, the reality of God. And so this morning for your folder, it's a list of 20 requests for our church. Uh, there are requests like simply as pray for three students or children from our church by name. Uh, a request like why don't you spend some time praying about small groups. It gives you 20 requests. And here's the cool thing. If you spend just 30 seconds on each request, just 30 seconds, you've prayed for 10 minutes. And so I'm going, I've never prayed for 10 minutes in my life. That's crazy. We want to offer you this tool to try to stretch you a little bit. Stretch you in your praying. Stretch you in spending time in the conscious presence of God. And also receiving the benefits of the church of us doing this together. And that's the other thing that's been cool about working out. I don't do jumping jacks on my own. I eat, I eat crunchers on my own, but I don't do jumping jacks on my own. The group helps me do that. The group will help us as we pray together and see results of the prayer that we offer up to God. So what we're asking you to do is at least once a week, 10 minutes of prayer for Southfield. Use the list. Email your results. How's it going? Are you getting better? Is your endurance getting better? Is your coordination improving in prayer? Uh, We look forward to joining together in that. Let's stand up, and we're going to close our time together singing to our God. Julian, could you put those first words up there? Just want to zone in on that first word. It's kind of the theme of the song, kind of the theme of the morning, right? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever is yours and heaven and earth bow.